1: Megan Bell witnessed in her wealthy classmates a staunch belief in determinism, specifically that the good fortunes they were born with were meant to be, something she totally disagreed with. So much so, she wants a wealth tax. Norma Wicker reads, Take My Money by Megan Bell. Megan Bell's fiction and poetry have appeared in over a dozen publications, including Prairie Fire, The New Quarterly, and Grain. Her first collection of short fiction will be published by BookHug in 2021.
0: I'm Norma Wick. This is an article titled, Take My Money, by Megan Bell, from the January-February issue of The Walrus. Last Christmas, I gave my father a copy of Winner's Take All, and and Gardas's scathing critique of how the wealthy use philanthropy to reinforce their power. Girardas speaks as an insider. He is a former analyst for McKinsey & Company, a consulting firm that, as the New York Times reported, has both advised Purdue Pharma on how to turbocharge opioid sales and raise the stature of authoritarian governments. I picked the book because I'd spent the last half decade having a back and forth with my parents about starting a charitable foundation, only to realize that we had very different visions for what charity might be. I imagined them donating a portion of their income, which would, in turn, award grants to local nonprofits. My mother suggested they instead accumulate millions in an endowment and donate the capital returns annually. Two months later, "'I was talking to my dad, and he told me he had read it. "'This doesn't apply to me, Megan,' he said. "'Do I have a private jet?' "'No,' I said, adding that the dozens of commercial flights he takes annually "'still leave an outsized environmental footprint. "'Do I have a mansion?' he asked. "'Yes,' I said, pointing out that the house he bought after separating from my mother "'had even been featured in an architecture magazine. "'No, I mean, do I have a mansion at the lake?' Dad, I said, are you asking me if you have a mansion on your private island? Yes. No, I carefully picked my words. Neither of the houses on your private island is a mansion. My family is rich via a privately owned corporation founded by my maternal grandfather. In the last decade, we joined the elite ranks of Canada's point zero one percent in the top 10% of the 1% wealthiest in the country, because we, like many wealthy families, are only getting richer. I don't know how much money my family has, nor do I have access to their wealth. They've identified me, correctly, as the leaky faucet of the family because of my feminist and socialist politics. I've encouraged them to share more than they currently donate, and to pay their 700 employees more. As I see it, the ongoing conflict between me and my family is simple— They believe that they are entitled to yearly vacations, two cabins, sports cars, a speedboat, lavish parties, and growing their own wealth despite already having so much more than most people. They believe that, because they are millionaires and not billionaires, because they are new money my mother's father was the son of an Italian immigrant who worked as a produce driver, my father is the son of upper middle class Republicans. Because they are generous with their many friends, and because they pay their taxes, they are not the problem. I believe, as A.Q. Smith put it in Current Affairs, that it is immoral to be rich. All of which is why I want Canada to adopt a wealth tax. The growing wealth gap, the impact of capitalism on climate change, and the question of what will happen when millions of jobs are inevitably lost to automation— are just some of the many frightening issues younger generations are facing. Inequality, both within Canada and globally, has been steadily increasing since the 1980s. Canadian billionaires increased their wealth by over $20 billion in 2018, and bank executives from the top five Canadian banks pocketed $55 million in direct compensation. Meanwhile, according to an Oxfam report, the poorest half of the country holds only around 4.5% of its wealth. What's more, about 3.4 million people, roughly 18% of whom are children, live below the poverty line. To combat and reverse this trend, progressive political leaders such as Bernie Sanders, Elizabeth Warren, and Jagmeet Singh have all proposed different versions of a wealth tax on the richest families in their respective countries. If enacted... Singh's plan would tax 1% of wealth exceeding $20 million, inclusive of real estate, investments, and luxury items, raising nearly $70 billion in additional tax revenue over the next decade. I'd argue that a wealth tax, combined with other reforms such as capping executive pay, cracking down on tax shelters, and increasing the top marginal income tax rate, has the potential to slowly erode the fortunes of the super-wealthy, and limit the amount of money individual families can accumulate. I began to see the idea of a wealth tax grow in popularity after French economist Thomas Piketty proposed a progressive annual tax on capital in his 2013 book, Capital in the 21st Century. In Canada, a recent survey found that the majority of people, including conservatives, support a wealth tax. As Piketty explains, somewhat laboriously, a wealth tax will make it possible to avoid an endless inegalitarian spiral while preserving competition and incentives for new instances of primitive accumulation. I was raised by capitalists in a family culture of extreme competitiveness, and my early childhood experiences left me with a nihilistic worldview that held me in a deep depression until I was introduced to feminist and left wing politics at the University of Victoria. Before that, I was a product of two years at a private school and two years at West Vancouver Secondary School, where one of my yearbooks boasted that the business program taught students to be the, quote, next Donald Trump. Two traits I sometimes witnessed in my classmates still jar me today. The first is a belief in determinism, specifically that the good fortunes they were born with and experienced were meant to be. When we discussed the topic in class— I felt like one of the few who didn't find the idea comforting. Instead, I remember asking if children born into poverty or with incurable illnesses were also meant to be. The question was hedged, and the topic swiftly changed. The second trait I witnessed in my classmates is a belief in their own exceptionality, the idea that they could achieve whatever they wanted to if they just put forth enough effort. This isn't necessarily a bad thing, except so many of them also gave themselves credit for what they could have achieved if only they had tried. I had heard multiple rich kids dismiss low grades or failures because they didn't try. I remember being ousted by my high school friend group after one girl bragged that her C's would be A's if she'd just studied instead of partying in our first year of university, and I replied bluntly, All you've proven is that you were stupid enough not to try. Similarly, I remember my younger brother basing his claims of genius on the fact that he put in a minimum effort, but still passed his engineering classes, and I once heard an older cousin claim that the only reason he hadn't tried to join Mensa was that he was too modest. This attitude, I think, is a reason why so many privileged kids assume they could have bootstrapped themselves out of poverty if only they'd had the opportunity, and also why they seem to embrace victim-blaming. I wish I could claim that, on average, the wealthiest in society are thoughtful, compassionate, and generous when it comes to their money. But my experience has been the opposite. I remember watching an executive chase down a cab driver after drunkenly handing him a $100 bill instead of a 10 to get his money back. I also remember a high school classmate who grew up in a mansion with a pool and a hot tub telling me, while we were eating at a Denny's, that he doesn't believe in tipping servers. When we visited other countries on vacation, my parents would teach me and my brother to haggle with street vendors and shame me for being gullible and too easily taken advantage of when I paid higher prices. This is more than just a selection of anecdotes. It's been well established that Canada's rich give a smaller percentage of their income to charity each year than do people with substantially less wealth. And... When they do donate, they are likely to give to organizations that appeal to individual responsibility over communal values, according to recent studies. It's been said that it's easier to imagine the end of the world than the end of capitalism. I'm no utopian, but I know there are better ways for us to live. I believe that policy changes to limit intergenerational inequality, the exploitation of labor, and the exploitation of the environment— will lead to happier and healthier outcomes for everyone, the children and grandchildren of today's winners included. They would free all of us to stop comparing ourselves to one another, to let go of mass consumption and the gospel of prosperity. It would make us all less lonely if we could abandon the cult of individualism to embrace mutual care over self-care, collaboration over competition, active change over positive thinking— For this, we need social services to ensure that the basic needs of all are met. For example, a universal basic income could empower workers to say no to exploitative and abusive employers, as well as to jobs that are detrimental to society or the environment. How do we pay for all of this? Tax the rich. They might not realize it, but by taxing our billionaires and multimillionaires down to a more reasonable level of wealth— we would likely be doing them and their children an enormous favor. Research has shown that affluent children and teenagers are at high risk for anxiety, depression, and substance abuse. Researchers suggest that this is a result of pressure to achieve and isolation from parents. The rich have been shown to be less empathetic, and narcissistic or toxic parenting can both cause narcissism in children and lead to significant emotional and physical health struggles for them. I've observed that wealthy men who identify themselves as new money can be contemptuous of old money, those who inherit their wealth instead of earning it. In my experience, this can even include contempt for their own heirs, which leads some children to compete with the family patriarch, to try to accumulate greater wealth and power than what they already will inherit, in an effort to prove themselves worthy of it. Many of the rich boys I went to high school with had identities tied to meeting or exceeding the wealth and success of their fathers. When I was younger, I remember hearing the romanticized story of my grandfather's self-made rags-to-riches success and my father's dramatic growth of the family business, and knowing, with remorse, that I would never have a similar sense of achievement. Of course, the struggles of the wealthy pale in comparison to the struggles of those on the bottom half of the socioeconomic ladder. My point here is not that we should pity rich children, but rather that they do not seem to benefit from inequality either. In Complex PTSD, Pete Walker describes how children who experience emotional abuse and neglect often overdevelop one of four defense responses—fight, flight, freeze, or fawn— Children who are allowed to imitate the bullying of a narcissistic parent may develop a fixated fight response to being triggered, he explains. These types learn to respond to their feelings of abandonment with anger and subsequently use contempt, a toxic amalgam of narcissistic rage and disgust, to intimidate and shame others into mirroring them and into acting as extensions of themselves. I believe we see this in the contempt many successful capitalists have for people who claim victimhood or who come to rely on what Walker calls freeze, escapism and addiction, or fawn, people-pleasing responses to childhood trauma. As Gabar Mate notes in The Realm of the Hungry Ghosts, money, like many other things, can become addictive. This is not to say that wealth hoarders aren't responsible for their actions, but rather that their hunger knows no end. The rich can chew up and spit out the most sensitive among them. Here, I think of Donald Trump's older brother who died of alcoholism. Of the private older brother of Charles and David Koch, who fought legal battles against his siblings and tried to distance himself from them. And of the countless stories of hazing and sexual assault within the Greek system, as well as its connections to binge drinking. I've been joking for years that I cannot bear to be sober around my family— Sometimes I suspect that drugs and alcohol are necessary for the rich to live with themselves and one another. We certainly consume more booze than any other demographic. In the words of Brett Kavanaugh, I liked beer. I still like beer. I don't expect 0.1 percenters or their children to have sudden changes of heart. When you are a child of winners, it is difficult to choose what feels like losing. A popular 2012 blog post titled, Straight White Male, The Lowest Difficulty Setting There Is, compares privilege to settings in a video game. But for people who grew up believing competition is everything, it is more humiliating to lose a game played on easy than on a more difficult level. So here, I speak to everyone else. The rich do not care about you. Some might even hate you. And any rich person claiming otherwise is conning you. Call their bluff. The rich will not help you, will not save you through job creation or anything else. Corporate tax cuts are associated with greater inequality, not more job opportunities. The average rich person is looking out only for himself. I use the male pronoun because, according to Bloomberg's recent list, only 13% of the world's 500 richest people are women— and the easiest way for a woman to rise to the 1% is still through marriage or inheritance. We live in a world where the purpose of many high-paying jobs is to maintain the bureaucracy of capitalism and the myth of meritocracy, while jobs that are essential to a healthy community—care workers and hygiene and sanitation workers, for example—are overworked and underpaid. Private schools and the parents who pay for their children to attend them receive subsidies and tax breaks, while teachers at public schools across Canada suffer underfunding and overcrowding. The gig economy is disrupting industries such as hospitality and transportation, undermining worker protections. As Gia Tolentino points out in Trick Mirror, under late-stage capitalism... The model of business success in the millennial era is that of dismantling social structures to suck up cash from whatever corners of life can still be exploited. I'm a child of the 0.1 percent, one of the thousands of children who, through no merit of our own, were born to potentially inherit a disproportionately large chunk of the world. While I am grateful for the financial resources my parents have invested in me, I want a more equitable world one where every child is cared for and has the opportunity to nurture their talents. Bluntly, it is incomprehensible to me that we live in a country where some people have indoor swimming pools and others do not even have clean drinking water. Dear Canada, For the love of humankind, the planet and its creatures, and the innate sense of justice I believe most of us carry, please support progressive tax changes— such as the wealth tax proposed by the NDP, and environmental action. We need to elect politicians who will tax the rich, eliminate unjust corporate tax loopholes, and crack down on tax havens, not politicians who have been bought by oil executives and other wealthy donors. And, to my family and to the other children of the wealthy who may be reading this, it's time to break out of our bubble and look at how much we consume. Wealthy children have a unique advantage in this fight, access to the sources of the problem. It's time to put aside our egos and listen to the people most affected by inequality and climate disaster, to follow their leadership, to put aside our obsession with individual achievement and work collectively for a better world. Who knows? We might even save our souls. That was an article titled Take My Money by Megan Bell from the January-February issue of The Walrus. I'm Norma Wick.
1: You've been listening to Voices of the Walrus on AMI-audio, produced by Don Dickinson, audio engineering by Sam Robinson and Bill Shackleton. The manager of AMI-audio is Andy Frank, and I'm your host, Lloyd Robertson. If you enjoyed this podcast, please consider giving us a rating and review, and subscribe for more.
0: This was an AMI podcast. For more accessible media, visit AMI.ca.